And we are live from the empire of lies and just outside the matrix. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan with guest host Jason Goodman today. This is the backstory. Do we have Jason? Yes. Hello, Lee. How are you? Good, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Okay, so we have a uh, a great show. I'm going to say the I I know part of it's great. I can preach it because I did it already. It's a pre-tape interview <laughs> we have in the second hour with Alex Craner talking about Bill Browder and Kordakovsky oh. and everything. That's in the second hour, and really it is a great interview. I want yeah. to reset on a story for people who aren't familiar with it. And I did a great interview. Then, Command Central, let me give you a heads up. In the first hour, we have Mark Sloboda on, straight out of Moscow. I would like to keep Mark up way past his bedtime till almost the end of the hour. Okay, Jason? Sure. Because we have a lot to talk with Mark about, and we don't get him often, and it's late over there. It's... What time is that? I think it's almost midnight in Russia. It's 11 o'clock, right, in Moscow. So uh, we'll keep him up a little bit, but that that leaves less time for us. So 202-521-1320 is the number to call. At the top of the hour, we got like 15 minutes, Jason. Hmm. Then I'll introduce the pre-tape interview. And Sounds that's good. today's show. That's today's show on the backstory. Now, I want to talk about some things, Jason, of course, you from Crowdsource of Truth, about journalism, specifically about the war. One, Gonzalo Lira, still no one has heard from him. Yeah. Now, you, you know who Gonzalo is. I do. And I was watching him all along, somebody just contacted me raising the point, and I had noticed this, but I'm not sure why he does this, that Gonzalo Lira usually starts his regular live streams by saying, where is Tiffany Dover? Yes, yes. He talks about disappeared people a lot. And Tiffany Dover, have you looked, did you know anything about that story? I went to Chai Memorial in Chattanooga in April to speak to the public information officer who had avoided me for weeks. And then I haven't revealed this until today, but I was contacted in June or July by NBC News, Brandy Zadrodzny. I don't know if you're aware of her, disingenuous individual in my opinion. But she asked me all kinds of questions. And then just yesterday, she released a podcast called Tiffany Dover is dead, asterisk. And I released my video response to that earlier today on Crowdsource the Truth 5, the YouTube channel. Okay, so and, so obviously you know, let's, yeah, let's reset yeah, it yeah. completely. Because yeah, yeah. I actually didn't know anything about it. Tell okay. people who is Tiffany Dover. What do we know for sure? Okay, so Tiffany Dover is a nurse at Chai Memorial Hospital, and in December of 2020, when the vaccine had just been introduced, the mRNA vaccine, Tiffany appeared on a local news segment where she was volunteering to be one of the first to be inoculated, and she received the injection on camera, 
And then there was an immediate press conference following the injection. And when she stood up to speak seven minutes after the injection, she collapsed and passed out on camera. And this created now, a flurry. Now, that's that's 100 percent confirmed. That's accurate. No one yeah. can deny that. Right. Right. Happened on live TV and it's all over. You can still see it. So then two or three days later, the hospital, through their Twitter account, which has since turned private and also deleted this video. But two days after that occurred, the hospital released a video that I have saved where it shows the, some portion of the nursing staff, you know, 20 or 30 people standing on this stairwell. And it's like a 27 to 30 second clip that starts on a wide shot, cuts to a closer shot. Tiffany is there with all these other nurses holding signs that say, like, we support Tiffany or something like that with the date on it, 12-21-2020. And it's like a proof of life. It's the most bizarre video. And what I observe is that Tiffany Dover uh, is seen twitching two to three times in the video in a way that appears to me to be involuntary muscle movement. And there are a number of cuts, which to me in a 30-second video is suspicious. So when I ask, you know, they've pulled this video. And in my view, if there's any question about this at all, a responsible public relations person would say, Nurse Dover, let's just make a 30-second video with you saying on either cell phone or camera, it doesn't have to be a big fancy thing, just saying, I know everybody saw the video where I passed out. I'm totally fine. I took the vaccine November, December, whatever. And here I am. No need to worry. No need to contact me on social media. But they did not do that. Right. And nobody knows where this nurse is. She's a ghost. She's vanished from social media where she used to post daily. Now, I've never said she's dead. I have no evidence that she's dead. I've just asked questions like, why would the hospital not answer these simple questions? And now here we are more than a year later. NBC News now has released a whole entire podcast, the focus of which is to say that Jason Goodman and other people investigating this are conspiracy theorists, not to say... Here's Tiffany Dover on our podcast, and she's fine. They they didn't air a new interview with Tiffany no. Dover, right? No, no, they did not. Not yet. I mean, maybe they will. This was the first episode. So it's called Tiffany Dover is Dead, asterisk, and it ended with sort of a cliffhanger, leaving the uninformed viewer thinking, oh, maybe next week they'll have Tiffany Dover on. I mean, that's fine if this is X-Files or whatever. But this Brandy Zadrodzny contacted me last June saying, Jason, don't you feel guilty that you're benefiting from YouTube videos that are subjecting this woman and her family to harassment online? And then, first of all, I didn't do that. I never told anybody to harass her. And she's not a private individual. The second you go on the news to be a spokesperson for the hospital or the vaccine company or whatever – and then you're seen live on the news having this arguably negative reaction to the vaccine, you now become the subject of public interest. And you are what, as far as my opinion tells me, you are what the law considers a limited purpose public figure. And it's no longer the same. If somebody goes and publishes my mother's phone number on Twitter and tells people, go call up Jason Goodman's mother and tell her he's a rapist, my mother is not injecting herself into the Twitter. She's sitting at home watching the news with my father, 
drinking coffee with her friends. My mother is a private individual. Somebody who goes on the news to get injected with a vaccine and then passes out has just become a public individual. So it's interesting that NBC News thinks it's okay for them to benefit and to publish podcasts with insensitive titles if this woman is dead. Um, and it's quite sensational on my, from and, my perspective. And, Gonzalo, and you're right, Gonzalo there would bring that up all the time. And also he did uh, a video where he also brought up in relation to that the story of the general who's over in Ukraine, no one knows where he is, but he also mm. brought up the Scripple story, the story right. that happened in Salisbury, England. And I know about that because I've been to Salisbury right. and I did some investigation over there. And furthermore, Sergei Scripple and his daughter, Yulia, were supposedly poisoned by Russia. That's the claim that was made by British intelligence. Yes. And that makes no sense. And what we know for sure is they vanished. No the Scripples have vanished? The Scripples have vanished in British custody. Wow. And there's some weird stuff like that, like a, a phone call that she made to her aunt that was released where she was saying, I can't talk about this. And, and she's in British custody. And wow. you think the Scripples could be available, same thing, for press interviews or something like that, right? Yes, the Scripples exactly. should, should, should be available for the press interviews. And, and Yulia Scripple had a fiancé in Russia when she went to England. Huh. And now she's apparently decided to stay in England, which is a little wow. bizarre. Indeed. You know what I'm saying? It is. So, There's another thing that's undeniable about that, Lee, because one of the elements of evidence that they used to make the deter or supposed evidence that they used to make the determination that this poisoning was supposedly done by Russia was that they said that this Novichok nerve agent could have only come from Russia. But that's not true. Yes. People can go onto Google Patents right now and put in Northwestern University and Novichok. Northwestern has a patent for a metal framework, organic metal framework, for the detoxification of Novichok. And I'm, I do not believe that you could make that without having the chemical compound. So that is evidence now, now, that Northwestern University well, has. Well, that is going on, and this will use this to transition to our guest, Mark Sabota. Hmm. While Gonzalo Lear is going on, is missing, and... Supposedly, the rumor is, and this would jive with what Gonzalo Lira says. Gonzalo Lira says if he's not heard from him in 12 hours, he's probably been taken. And the rumor oh. is he's been taken by the F SBU, the wow. secret police for the Ukraine. And if that's oh, the case, right, he's probably a dead man. So it made wow. me, for one, count my blessings. I feel so badly that a person who'd spoken, all he'd done is sp given his opinion and talked about things, might have been taken. And the SPU, and if, by the way, if they killed him, it wasn't quick. 
But why was he staying? Is, why why was he staying in Ukraine? He had to know he was in danger. Well, I think he, to some extent, was stuck there. Huh. It became difficult to get out. Right, but right. The the point is, Jason. I think I said this yesterday, Carmine Shavia. If you had been there, if you happened to be in Ukraine, I could see you easily doing exactly what Gonzalo did, walking yeah. around yeah. with your phone, saying, yeah. here's what I'm seeing, the electricity's working, right? Yeah. And there before the grace of God go I. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, meanwhile, NBC News analyst Malcolm Nance have you seen this video? Oh, yeah. Well, but I mean, how can he go? He's wearing U.S. military stuff. How can he? I thought he was an army guy. How can he just go join a foreign army? This is a, the, the and, and Malcolm Nance, former Defense Department official and uh, NBC, MSNBC news analyst, is fighting as a mercenary. For Ukraine. Now, here's the thing. I feel bad for Assange. I feel bad for Gonzalo. Assange, of course, in prison now in England. Yeah. But if, you know, Assange had signed up with Russia, even, it doesn't make any difference. If Gonzalo had enlisted as a mercenary to fight against Ukraine, I think you're no longer a journalist at that point. No, certainly not. Right? You're a active combatant. Right. And so what I'm saying is, Malcolm Nance, I wish no one death, but unfortunately, he's going to get what he, whatever he gets, he's not the same as Gonzalo Lira or Assange or any journalist. He's not over there as a journalist. He's a combatant. Oh my God, Lee! When and you look at his at his Wikipedia right now, military career says allegiance, United States and Ukraine. Yes, it's amazing, and yeah. it's very troubling. And we'll talk yeah. to Mark Slavoda about it a little bit. Straight out of Moscow, right after this break, on the backstory. On the back, Troy, 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Do me a favor, tell your friends, especially those who are skeptical, any friends you have who are open-minded, please recommend this show. This episode in particular is going to be fantastic. And one thing we say in the interview with Alex is don't take our word for it. Invite your skeptical friends to listen if they've heard negative stuff about Sputnik, and how could they have not have? Yeah. Just watching CNN, they would have done yeah. that. Yeah. We don't tell people, trust us. We tell people, these are the facts, and you can look them up them yourself. And so we want you to invite your friends 
And please have them look it up. Tell them to be skeptical. We don't censor anyone. We have guests from all sides of the political spectrum here, and we welcome them. And now coming at us from Moscow, great friend of the show, serious analyst and expert, Mark Sloboda. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Hey, Mark. Lee, Jason, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory. Good to have you back. Now, now Mark, I'm going to start with a softball question, I, but we're going to set up this clip. Tell us who Victor Medvedchuk is. He, he was – set up the story, giving people an indication who he is. Okay, uh, Viktor Medvedchuk is or was the leader of the largest opposition party in Ukraine. About a year ago, there were polls showing that it was the largest political party in Ukraine, showing higher favorability than uh, Zelensky's own servant of the people. This is despite it being uh, called a pro-Russia party. It's not pro-Russia, it's just not rapidly anti-Russia. It is a political party that represents the interests of Eastern Ukrainians almost exclusively. Um, and um, Medvedchuk is a, a businessman. Uh, you could say oligarch, except he really hasn't had much political uh, influence, um, uh, certainly not on the government over the last eight years. Um, he was um, charged with treason uh, by Zelensky, politicized uh, treason charges. And it has to be said that Zelensky's other biggest political opponent, the pro-Maidan former president of the Putsch regime, the candy oligarch Poroshenko, was also charged with uh, this politicized treason charges on the same – on the exact same charges, which is that they were involved in – a um, a transaction between uh, the Kiev regime government and the Donbas authorities to get coal because uh, the Kiev regime needed coal, you know, to uh, power uh, to to provide heat, to uh, power uh, um, to provide power for electricity, and so on. Uh, Ukraine is is very coal heavy, um, and um, they they got coal from Donbas, which is the biggest source of of coal in the Ukraine. But because basically everyone in the Donbas has been declared a terrorist, literally, there was an anti-terrorist uh, operation zone um, for years over the area. Um, they have been charged, as absurd as it is, with the support of terrorism for, for, for doing business with terrorists to get Ukrainian coal for Ukraine. And this terror charge happened before the military operation, I'll, I'll yes. say, or as some call it, invasion, before the Russian military action, right? This treason before, charge before the was this. Yeah, before the intervention. This was, was uh, already almost a year ago. He's been under house arrest for almost a year. And uh, since the uh, military uh, intervention, the Russian military inter intervention began, um, Zelensky has um, banned all opposition political party in the country, uh, uh, activity in the country. It's, it's suspended, uh, you know, essentially yeah. indefinitely. Um, <laughs> and um, even before that, um, he had seized, he had banned all of the 
um, the critical media in the country, particularly uh, representing East Ukraine, which has never supported the Maidan, um, he, he banned six major television stations, multiple online media outlets, bloggers and everything. And then since the that was before the intervention, since the intervention began, he has actually unified all media un, in, in the country under one totalitarian unified information policy all broadcasting the same thing wow. uh but you know this is, this, is is a, this is well <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no comment uh, <laughs> this is um this is you know a quote democracy unquote and um medvedchuk um is is now in the kiev regime authorities hands uh he was uh, taken by the sbu their intelligence uh unit um, and um, he's been literally handcuffed, and they've taken Zelensky himself posted photos gloating yeah. about him, saying he would send him back to Russia. He's not a Russian citizen. He is not, <laughs> uh, um, uh, you know, um, he is uh, not part of the Russian military. Uh, he is not a Russian citizen. He is a Ukrainian citizen. He's the leader of the biggest opposition party in Ukraine. Um, and it's just that his party thinks that the country would be better off going back, you know, before 2014 and having good relations with their biggest neighbor and until then trade partner uh, rather than making an enemy out of them, uh, which is what has happened since 2014, resulting in in, you know, the complete demolishment of of the economy and 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 now the country militarily once it uh, has you know uh, repeatedly uh, begged pleaded and screamed to join NATO. Uh, um, so um, you know the, the, the talk. Uh, Medvedchuk's wife Oksana Medvedchuk, uh, a who was a television celebrity in, in Ukraine, um, she um, has begged everyone under the sun uh, from Zelensky to Putin to Boris Johnson to Erdogan for some reason uh, to try to get these two British uh, mercenaries um, exchanged. Uh, uh, this is Sean Pinner and Aidan Aslan. Um, uh, tried to get them exchanged for Medvedchuk. And this has been met from both sides with Russia saying, why, why would we do that? He's not one of our <laughs> citizens. He's not part of the military operation. Uh, you know, why would we exchange two British mercenaries uh, captured in a, a military operation as unlawful combatants for this Ukrainian citizen? And, you know, I mean, he's had good relations uh, with with the uh, the Russian government. Um, it, that's that's true because he doesn't think the Ukraine should be its enemy. But that's not an acceptable foreign policy position in Ukraine after the 2014 putsch, right? Um, and um, I mean, there's constant rumors that um, um, uh, Putin is the uh, godfather of their child, although that has never been substantiated. That's tossed around everywhere. Um, but, you know, anyway, he's, he's a Ukrainian citizen. He's the leader of the opposition party. And, uh, you know, Zelensky's gloating uh, with him in chains. And also, I don't think that uh, either Boris Johnson or Zelensky has responded uh, in any way positively to the idea of changing these two British mercs uh, for Viktor Medvedchuk. Even though the suggestion initially was Zelensky's, right? He said, we will trade him for, for Ukrainian soldiers, meaning 
you know, uh, presumably right. some of uh, Azov, the right side, I, I don't, you know, uh, his idea of Ukrainian patriots, uh, the neo-Nazis, or, or maybe some regular Ukrainian military. That was his proposal. I don't know how serious that was. I don't think that he would give Medvedchuk up. He's got his biggest political opponent in chains in his hands. He's hardly about to turn him over uh, to uh, the uh, you know a country that has launched a military intervention against his regime. It's it's not going to happen. I think he said that simply for propaganda value, and he's certainly not going to exchange him for two British mercs. Well, even though because among the people who've spoken out in favor of the British mercenaries being released are the British mercenaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Unconfirmed reports that they were wetting their pants uh, while they were uh, doing it. I mean, it's it's all rather comical. Just a few weeks ago, this um, this one Aiden Aslan was was um, making uh, video reports, throwing up his finger and saying "F you, Putin," and I will never surrender. Blah blah blah. Uh, a couple weeks later, I, I surrender. <laughs> and, wow. Um, well, let's uh, see how his position know, um, has e- evolved. We happen to have the. Begging, I don't know how to put it. They're begging Boris Johnson to take this deal. Hit it. Let's play that. I remember seeing in the news uh, when Viktor Medvedchuk was uh, arrested for his political affiliations. Um, if Boris Johnson really does care, like he says he does, about British citizens, and he would help pressure Zelensky to do the right thing and return. Uh, Victor to his family and return us to our families. In what was this video? Mr. Boris Johnson, um, obviously, I'm Sean Pinner. Um, a lot's gone on over the last five or six weeks uh, that I'm not fully aware of. Uh, obviously, I understand that uh, Mr. Medvedchuk has been uh, uh, detained and we uh, look to exchange myself and Aidan Aslin for uh, Mr. Medvedchuk. Obviously, I'd really appreciate your help in this matter and pushing this agenda. And, and let's say it's a two for one deal, right? <laughs> so, so the British, but I think pressure should be put on Boris Johnson. This deal is on the table. They would trade those two for Medvedchuk, and it's two people, two people who went to war versus uh, a politician who wasn't fighting anybody and who was arrested well before the conflict started. So, Well, we know Aidan Aslan says he didn't fight anyway, anyone either. Evidently, he was just a cook or something. But a cook for uh, the He who? was the cook for the, neo-na- for the neo-Nazis, for Azov. That's who he was with. So, um, huh. Huh. He says he didn't fight anybody. Is, is, is it a sour broaden cook or... <laughs> I, you know, when when these foreign mercenaries are are, are caught, well, we'll find out that the entire legion of them were all trained as cooks. That none of them did right. anything. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, so there's that story. That's an update on one of the headlines and fantastic explanation, Mark. And Medvedchuk uh, should be pointed out is, I will say, one of the main interviews if not the main interview in the Oliver Stone executive produced film Revealing Ukraine, directed by Igor Lopodnik, and also featuring me. So Medvedchuk 
is interviewed extensively. And that interview is in a film revealing Ukraine that has been shadow banned on Amazon and that YouTube took down. But you can see it. I think it's on Rumble. Igor Lepotnik has it where you can see it free. And it's highly worthwhile, not just because I'm wearing a suit, sort of, you know, not tied necessarily. <laughs> well, maybe we could get you involved in the swap deal then. Yeah. Oh, let's keep yes. you out of it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, have you been following the Gonzalo Lira story? Do you know who he is, Mark? Yeah, yeah, I, I, we've, we've talked before, he and I. And, and what did you think of Gonzalo? Um, you know, I, you know, he doesn't have, uh, you know, a, a huge history, um, but he has come to understand Ukraine better than most Western journalists who have been there for years, if not decades, in a very short period of time. And uh, the videos that he was uploading out of Kharkov, reporting what he sees, he communicated what he was seeing and what was happening in Ukraine in contravention of the, the narrative of Western mainstream media and governments very effectively, I thought. Uh, he did a very good job of communicating uh, in you know, really uh, uh, a layman's terms and empathy uh, what it was like to be in Kharkov in East Ukraine right now. I hate that, by the way. Yeah, and they have, they've been great videos. And it seems... If he was taken by the SBU, would that be beyond them? And is that Seal's fate if he was taken by the SBU? Um, I, I honestly don't know uh, at this point. Um, you know, presumably uh, he is he's a foreign citizen. He's Chilean. He's from Chile. Um, so I've, I've heard that he is also an American. He also has American citizenship. That she might offer him. That. He has said that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so some some fig leaf of um, you know protection, hopefully. But the SPU has been openly assassinating Ukrainian officials in the streets of Kiev in broad daylight. I mean, Denis Kiryev, their first peace negotiator, one of the the first peace negotiators with Russia, they just shot him dead in the street, walking into a courthouse in the middle of the day in front of multiple witnesses, weren't even shy about it. They say he was a traitor. They just summarily executed him on the street. Uh, The same thing with the former deputy head of the SPU. They also uh, executed him. They actually videotaped themselves doing it. They pulled up alongside of, of his car. Uh, and and on both sides just uh, filled it full of automatic weapons fire, again, claiming he was a traitor. Um, so if they're willing to do that to their own officials with without the slightest bit of, you know, even attempting to hide it, right, they're, they're, they're quite uh, proudly proclaiming it. I mean, the Western mainstream media is not reporting it, even though it's reported in the Ukrainian press. And they're openly talking about it. They're not even trying to hide it. But it doesn't fit the narrative that the media is trying to sell about what's going on in Ukraine. So they simply gloss over it. You know, that doesn't need to be mentioned. That would just complicate things for, you know, the average, uh, you know, mainstream media consumer uh, too much. You don't have to think about that, that, that type of complicated uh, bit. But if they're willing to execute their own officials, then, uh, you know, 
despite the American and Chilean citizenship, there is good reason to worry. And I have also seen social media posts from some of the far right, uh, the these uh, neo-Nazi uh, death squads, uh, and they seem to be implying that they had him. Now, oh, really? There's not – yeah, there is not a, a – implying. They didn't come right out and say it. And of course and you can't also, take just sorry to interrupt, Mark, but we should yeah. set people at ease who hear that by – you know, these guys are watching the internet too. They could just say that. Yeah, yeah, they could. Um, it, it has to be said that there's not a lot of distinction between – the neo-Nazis in the SBU at this point. I mean, the BBC just actually posted a clip uh, last week of and uh, they were uh, uh, somewhere outside of Kiev and they were filming an SBU agent, an, an, an official um, who was on site and they were filming him and he had an SBU jacket on, you know, like like, say, an FBI uh, fieldwork jacket or, you know, uh, CIA, something like that. And this was the SBU. But also right there with the SBU, it was, you know, clearly, you know, not something he jury rigged himself. It said SS Galician Division. <laughs> right there what, underneath what, what the did SBU. It say? SS what? Galician. Galician. These were the yeah, these the were the West Ukrainian wow. uh, West Ukrainian Banderite fascists who joined the Waffen SS and had their own unit um, wow. uh, during World War II. Uh, they're they're pretty infamous in this part of the world, um, and that's openly worn underneath the SBU. So that's why I say there's not a lot of distinction anymore between the Ukrainian huh. intelligence and the neo Nazis, because obviously there are at least some of them are one and the same. And this really, I mean, BBC posted this. Of course, they didn't notice wow. it or call it out wow. or anything. I believe it's the 14th Division of the Waffen SS, and Another place you can, if you go to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, there's a memorial to the 14th Wathen SS Division up there. The truth is there there are monuments to to uh, West Ukrainian Nazi collaborators and Holocaust perpetrators all over the northern U.S. and Canada because of that is where a great deal of the Ukrainian diaspora at that time they they when they lost. They came here and they had been su supported in the early years of the Cold War by the CIA. Right. They tried to start an insurrection there, you know, in the very the early 1950s. They were supporting these these same neo-Nazis in Ukraine today, their grandparents. Yes. And, and like Christina Freeland, the vice yes. prime minister of Canada, is one of the spawn, Nazi spawn. Her yeah. grandfather Michael was a propaganda. Now, how, do you, I, how do you? I know. I always get pronunciations and on some Ukrainian words. I go like Alexander Shalupa. I talk about, but it's not Shalupa, is it? It's Halupa, something like that. And yeah, Michael Chomiak. There, there is different pronunciation. Michael Chomiak. I pronounce it because I'm American, but I believe it's actually pronounced. Homach or something like that. Yeah, it's but it's, he a, was, it's a complicated pronunciation in English to do. Because I even get it's, it's a lot, a lot of right, and I can't do that without spitting. So, <laughs> yeah, better best, best avoid that then. But best avoid that. And well, it's it's appropriate for them. But 
Christian Freeland's <laughs> grandfather, Michael Chomiak, was the editor of a Nazi newspaper in Poland and they published anti-Semitic stuff. And you could tell about this because when Michael Chomiak died in, New in Edmonton, Alberta, he had left his archives to the local Ukrainian group. And when he was the editor, he kept track of every anti-Semitic article he signed and how much he paid for it. His archives had extensive documentation of what he published. And that's Christina Freeland's grandfather. So and she's not at all apologetic for him or anything. She tried to, right. to defend him, right? And this is not this is not conspiracy stuff. This is incontestable. And the person to look up if you want to see, and I don't talk about him as much as I should, but I'm going to mention John Michael Himka. H-A-M-K-A. Look him up. You can look him up on YouTube. Look up John Michael Himka. He's Christina Freeland's uncle. And was, uh, what? I'm sorry, did I say incorrectly? John Paul Himka is Christina Freeland's uncle. And he also uh, was the son-in-law of Michael Chomiak. And he's a historian, and he's done fantastic research and documented extensively the Nazi connections. And by the way, he's not someone, he's not pro-Russian. He's opposed to the war and thinks it's criminal. But that's why his work on the Nazi stuff is so important, because he's an unimpeachable source. Yeah, he's a retired professor of history at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Yes, and was the chair of the department for a period of time. But Himka's done a lot of fantastic work on this. Now, Mark, let me ask you about something else. Uh, over here, the media, because Mariupol, the battle's in its last stages, right? Yes. I, I mean, I don't know how long that last stage will take because uh, the— Supposedly, there's about 3,000 Azov left, at least as of about 24 hours ago. Um, uh, the, the, it's almost entirely uh, Azov uh, at this point, along with a few hundred foreign guests of one form or another. And they are dug in. There is an extensive tunnel and uh, really heavily fortified bomb shelter. We're talking, uh, you know, the Soviet built to be, uh, you know, resistant to a, a nuclear strike, uh, bomb shelter uh, and tunnel network under the steel factory there. The if the steel factory is a city within a city, then it's a city under the city within a city. Now, I've known some media saying, and it's both the left and the right, NPR and Fox. Yesterday I was listening to them. They were both reporting that it's the end, that we're at the end game of this, and they said, Ukraine is defending the city of Mariupol, and they called it's their last stand to defend the city. And I was so incensed by that because I've seen videos by Patrick Lancaster, who's another independent journalist who's on the ground A over great there. Journalist. Yeah. Great journalist. And you see him when he interviews somebody, he doesn't cut to an interview and just he says something. He walks up to people. 
and you see the interview start where he's like, hey, what's going on? And I've seen in Mariupol, the Ukrainian troops and the Azov Battalion are not defending Mariupol. Are they? I no. mean, is it clear? Very old, Mariupol went for Donbass in 2014. Azov was sent in to put the jackboot down on Mariupol's neck. And uh, they then set up their national headquarters in Mariupol. Mariupol is famous for having a big Greek-Ukrainian um, uh, diaspora there. And if you read in the Greek press what they are saying about what Azov has done to them and done to the city, it is 180 from the narrative that the Western media, uh, as far as you know, Azov has kept them there. They've fired on their their own buildings. Uh, they fired on people trying to flee to keep them being used as human shields. There is no love lost between the majority of the population of Mariupol and uh, these uh, neo Nazis that were put there to keep them under control. And when Patrick Lancaster, he's in Mariupol now. When he goes up to people and talks to them and asks them, just he it's an open ended question. He's like, What do you what do you think? What's going on with the Russians? Yeah. What what I've happened seen, here today is what he usually says. Yeah, what happened here today? When people talk about it, they talk about how the Russians have helped them yeah. bring them water. Right. And, and showed it in some cases. But and the Ukrainians, they have snipers. There are snipers in Mariupol. And the snipers are attacking the civilians. Right, Mark? Yeah. There's no question that some of the people of Mariupol have been killed by the Russian intervention going after Azov and and the regular Ukrainian military that was there and the foreign mercenaries that have taken – you know, they, they took basically every building they could in the city as a firing position, shoved the people down in the basements. Right. And and then fired, you know, and forced the Russian military to go building by building room to room. And that has to be said, that is a war crime, not on the Russian side, on the Ukrainian side. But the Russian side undoubtedly has an incurred collateral damage. But at, at, I can't speak for the Ukrainian military that they're allied with there. But there are so many reports and reports from from people whose family I, I know personally who have family there that Azov was literally killing the people of Mariupol when they tried to flee, when they tried to get out of there using the humanitarian quarters. They were shooting the citizens that the U.S. government and Zelensky says they are there to defend and protect. Right. And so so what is fair to say they're defending is they're defending the Zelensky regime. That's yes. all they're defending. Well, for them, you know, this is the way Zelensky and, and they view each other. They both view each other as useful idiots. They're there to defend a regime that has elevated them to political and military power in the country, regardless of who is the figurehead leader that they don't really hold any particular allegiance to, as was shown, you know, in the early days of Zelensky's uh, uh, regime, uh, um, and vice versa. Zelensky, I don't think he really has any love for them, but he's perfectly willing to use them 
right, and their hateful ideology um, because they are militarily useful for him. It is a, a mutual use arrangement. Each believes they are using the other. Now, what do you think is going on militarily with the – we've heard reports that there have been missiles launched into Lviv and that they recently suffered their first civilian casualties. What what and that that Kiev is under some renewed attacks. Why the attacks in Lviv and Kiev? What's going on? Okay, well yeah, the uh, the attacks the, the, the strikes in Lvov are uh, hitting NATO weapon supplies that have been flooding across the border. They were specifically targeting military warehouses. Um, that uh, are, are filled with all this NATO arms that are flooding into the country. Russia declared that you know that that was a legitimate target, and they're reaching out and hitting it, and they're hitting it with cruise missiles for the most part. Um, now, uh, caliber cruise missiles. Now, um, as for uh, Kiev, um, what the Russian government says is that in res- they have ref- they say that they have refrained thus far from attacking what they said are decision-making centers in Kiev. Uh, Kiev has, has really only been hit a handful of times, very s- specific select targets. They say they have refrained from hitting decision-making sites, which would be what the U.S. calls command and control when they were trying to bomb out Saddam Hussein, um, um, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, his, his families, you know, uh, politicians, uh, you know uh, that support his regimes, um, uh, military uh, brass, you know uh, decision-making command and control centers. They say they haven't so far, but they said that in response to continued Ukrainian uh, these pot shots across the border, uh, sending a few helicopters or using a few artillery just to attack Russian villages to be able to attack something out of spite, you know, where there's clearly no military target and actually needs to be investigated as a war crime. But if that continued, then they would start uh, hitting these decision-making centers in Kiev, basically saying you're making the wrong decision. So yes, they're they're now potentially going after the intelligence and possibly the political leadership of the regime. Our co-host today is Crowdsource the Truth, Jason Goodman. Jason, do you have any questions for Mark in the last couple of minutes? Well, I'm curious to know what the general sense uh, among people there in Moscow or on the news or whatever about the sinking of that ship. Yeah, I, I think that that was a, a huge blow. Um, it, it is an emotional blow. It was a huge symbolic victory uh, for uh, the Kiev regime. Um, I mean, the official the Russian government has basically said that there was a fire aboard the ship while leaving completely vague about what started the fire. The Kiev regime claims that they hit it with two Neptune uh, anti-ship missiles, which are indigenous, an indigenous uh, cruise missile. Uh, now, supposedly at the beginning of the campaign, everything I've seen shows that Kiev only actually had one battery of these missiles. And the um, it seems to me that that probably would have been one of Russia's first targets, definitely within the first, you know, uh, so it's not something they would leave to uh, two months into, into the conflict uh, because of the damage that they could do. Uh, on the other hand, 
even before the conflict, the United Kingdom announced officially that not only was it building uh, military naval bases in Ukraine, but that it would supply the regime with harpoon anti-ship missiles. I think that there we I think that the Moskva, uh, the cruiser, the the flagship of the Black Sea, aging right. It was 90, 1976. It was laid down actually in Ukraine because that's where the shipyards of the Soviet Union were. Um, but um, you know, it's a, a venerable Three ship. There was a already dollars. Yeah, it, there was already talk about mothballing it. Right, um, it was kept in service. Um, it is not anything that's going to change the military outcome of the conflict. It was barely being used, right? Uh, it, it doesn't have, for instance, it doesn't fire calibers. It doesn't fire cruise missiles. Um, you know, it was a, a command ship for the Black Sea, basically. Uh, I believe it was hit by missiles, but I think there's a question of which missiles it was hit by. And I think that's why the Russian government is taking their time. They're right. trying to determine whether it was indeed Neptune's or whether it was British harpoon anti-ship missiles, and if so, then how to respond to that. Right. Now, Mark, speaking of uh, the, p p the reaction in Russia, I understand, and it seems logical to me from what I know, but you, you're in Moscow, so you know better than I. What is the sense of Russian people broadly? Do they want Putin... To back up, back off, or do they want Putin to go harder? Is there some sense that Putin is is pursuing the, the military action with too light a touch against Ukraine? Yeah, with I mean, you have to consider that there are some five million Ukrainians living in Russia, right? And uh, one out of every eleven Russian uh, families uh, in uh, the western part of the country has family in Ukraine, uh, but you know, particularly East Ukraine, of course. Uh, that said, uh, they know what's been going on in that country better, uh, far better than the average Westerner does. I, I hate to say, they talk to Ukrainians, they talk to their family there, they know what the people of East Ukraine have been through for the last eight years. Um, the polls, and I'm talking what they call independent polls, like Levada, and these are actually oppositionist polls. Uh, Levada has been funded by Western governments. Even Levada says that the support for the intervention is like 84 percent. Right. That, that, that's uh, uh, the polls that are showing. I have been getting a sentiment in the last few days that uh, we need to, to actually officially declare war and draw up further military resources, because if we've already incurred these costs, we need to finish this and we need to finish it for good. This, there cannot be another, an, a third Minsk right, accord right. that will be just left ripped up on the floor. I'm increasingly get a, getting a sense there is a patriotic rally around the flag effect here, a big you know, middle finger thrown to Western companies and governments you know, that have pulled out and then stolen their money and everything. And uh, you know, the general idea uh, that I'm getting at this point is the Russian people are willing to endure more uh, to, to see this through. So far, so far, that could change. Now, here's an easy question, and it's beneath you, but still, I sometimes use you, Mark, as my language guide. We see the, the Z patches on the Russian military uniform. My girlfriend asked me what specifically 
Z stands for? Yeah, that is like almost a, a myth. It is a meme at this point, talking about what these letters mean. Most likely what they were is uh, uh, letters that were painted on vehicles to indicate which theater. There were originally four separate military uh, theaters all right, uh, it, uh, for the intervention in Ukraine uh, so that they could easily be identified by uh, military units that were basically serving as road traffic and the, and the like to direct them where they needed to go, where they were going wrong, that sort of thing. But no one knows for sure that it, there has been no real official word on that. And it is it's quite clear that the Russian government has jumped on the meme that developed and uh, is is you know using it for their own uh, you know info information war morale purposes in Russia and you know you can see the Z everywhere around Moscow. Hmm. And 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 in fact, Ukraine I've heard has actually banned Z. What does Zelensky do about that? <laughs> yeah, uh, I've heard he's changed his name to. Because V is also being used. Uh, so I've heard he's changed his name to Olodomor Yelinsky. <laughs> there we go. I have one, one more question, and, and, Mark. We, we saw footage uh, or an image of a Tupolev Tu-160. This is the largest and fastest supersonic nuclear-capable bomber in the world flying over Ukraine. Is this Russia hinting that they're going to nuke something there? No, I mean, the, uh, just like the U.S., you know, B-52s were used in, you know, their military campaigns um, for uh, to drop conventional uh, weapons. And there have been the very first bombing flights uh, flown to, to actually bomb a target, now, not a, a cruise missile, not an airstrike, but actually bomb a target. Those bombers, from what I have heard, were used to strike the uh, Azov stall metal factory because the presumption uh, is that there are no civilians there to worry about, that this is just a steel factory tunnel network, uh, you know, with, with 3,000 neo-Nazis and their foreign guests there. And finally, last question for you. Uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said in an interview, I saw him say it, so this is not a, a, a deep fake of some kind. He was asked a question about something Zunsi said, and he said, he says many things depending on what he's drinking or smoking. Whoa. Did you see that? Did you see, yeah, I saw see that. Live Robert? Yeah, okay. I, so I tried it. My I, question, I mean, obviously, that was a personal attack. That, that, that was a personal but, but attack. Zelensky has appeared kind of drunk in some videos, hasn't he? I, I, I imagine that the man is probably getting very little sleep as well, and that could do that. I will simply say that it is he himself, in his youth, when he was a young comedian, because <laughs> that's what he was, uh, he really, and, and, you know, not even being comedically, extolled the virtues of cocaine that fueled Zelensky his did. lifestyle. Yes. I mean, that, wow. that's unquestionable. There's video of that. Now, that w was years and years ago. Whether he still has maintained that lifestyle or not, I couldn't say. And I don't wow. want to jump to that type of speculation. The man, you know, whatever, I, I don't think anything of him at all, but he's obviously under uh, enormous pressure. And I, I don't think those types of, of, of personal attack. I want to personally attack him 
for being a of supposed Jewish descent and having state armed and funded neo-Nazi death squads that he has sent to kill his own people uh, in Donbass for well him personally for the last two years. I want to attack him personally about that, not whether it seems like he's drunk or on drugs based on a video. Mark Zavoda, fantastic parents. Thanks for staying on a little late with us. It's nearly midnight in Moscow, so get where we're getting. I assume bed, but who knows? Yep. Mark Zavoda, thanks so much. Great appearance. When we come back, we'll be taking your calls, but call early because we only got about 12 minutes. With Jason Goodman on the backstory. Back on the backstory, live from the Empire of Lies, and on tape sometimes from the Empire of Lies. It's a show to take you to the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan. This is Backstory. So thanks again to Mark Zabota. What do you think, Jason? Well, it's always good to speak to somebody who's there, you know, because just being out talking to people in the shops, on the street, your friends, you get a real sense for just the, just the, you know, kind of taking the temperature of the local population. Yes. And I know it's shocking if you're reading media reports, but a lot of people do, I get the sense, and Mark confirmed it, want Putin to go harder. Yeah. They, they don't want him to because again, they've got a dog in the hunt and they know the truth. And so Putin's been having to balance, believe it or not, this is, he's been a balance attack. But the, the fact is, if Russia thought that Ukraine would fold and they start offering them support, in big numbers that hasn't happened and it's yeah. because of the assassinations i think i wouldn't if you're pro russia in ukraine would you keep it to yourself i don't i mean we're doing shows about it and i make it clear to a lot of people that you know people want me to side with them and just be like yeah back ukraine and i'm thinking look from a selfish standpoint, that seems like a great way to start World War III and get me killed. But just from a moral standpoint, I, I mean, it's clear if you look at history and news reports for eight years, Putin was insisting that these guys make good on their agreement with the Minsk Accords, and they haven't. So from my perspective, just from negotiating, you know, if someone refuses to make good on a negotiation, the negotiation is over. So I want to make sure that people listening don't think, Lee, that we're advocating some sort of warmongering policy. But the balance that you're talking about is extremely important. And I offer people this analogy. In the TV show uh, Breaking Bad, there was a moment where uh, Walter White sort of, you know, erred on the side of being gentle, as you're describing, and it resulted in somebody getting killed. And that created the new policy on that show where no more half measures, meaning when you commit to something like this, you can't do it halfway. 
you either finish it or you lose. Yeah, and I'll point out that if you've killed 13,000 people over eight years, a lot. You've you've already. You're going to hear this in the interview we have this hour with Alice Craner. The the crimes of the United States. This is really yeah. a war between NATO and Russia. Yes. And the United States has been engaging in crimes against Russia for decades. And these crimes affect the United States. I also yes. don't like you. <coughs> we, we talked about it in Shuttle yesterday. Uh, this affects the United States. There's yeah. a major scandal involving the Clintons. A major scandal. Do you, have you and I talked about the money plane story before, Jason? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I talk about it a little bit in this interview with Alex, and I've reposted on my Twitter feed the article, The Money Plane. That is a huge scandal. Millions of dollars from the U.S. Treasury was flown by organized crime to Russia during the Clinton administration. Huh. It was that story has not been covered here. Well, and not only that, Lee, we still don't know what Bill Clinton was doing in Moscow in 1969 or how a 20-something-year-old Strobe Talbot would have been tasked with translating Khrushchev's uh, memoirs. I mean, the whole thing is incredibly bizarre. Well, yes, and there's questions about it. But this affects American life in, in all sorts of ways. Corruption... Yeah. See Joe Biden, and also the foreign policy, obviously, and also domestic policy. The Trump administration, they used Russia and Ukraine was directly involved in it, in sabotaging the presidency of Donald Trump. And hey, Jason, send him a show. Backstory. Now, I'll try to get his name right, since he might be our next president. But I think, I said yesterday, I called him Rick DeSantis. But Ron DeSantis, I don't know why it stuck in my head, Rick, I don't know. But Ron DeSantis seems to be in ascendancy. Yeah. It's no longer, I think it's no longer a foregone conclusion that Donald Trump is simply going to walk in and be handed the nomination. I think a lot of people are questioning. Donald Trump on statements like the statements he made supporting Donald Trump should be saying nothing supporting the Ukrainian regime. I agree. Nothing. And do you think the Dr. Oz thing was a big deal in terms of not in terms of policy, it's whatever, but that it shows that Donald Trump's Achilles heel is that he's a lousy choice in people. Well, I, I don't know that much about Dr. Oz. I never watch his show, and I don't really know what his politics are about. But I agree with your statement that it's one of the biggest weaknesses of Donald Trump, the people he surrounds himself with. And the biggest problem for me was William Barr. And why do you say well, William Barr? No, sorry. You're going to be Jared Kushner. There's so many big problems. It's hard. William Barr, yeah, Jared, I say. Kushner's a big one, I'd say. Kushner's a big one. But, you know, if you if you get the William Barr book one damn thing after another, 
When I bought it, I thought he was talking about Donald Trump. But in fact, he's talking about his own career because the level of crazy things that he was involved in under H.W. Bush. Did you know that William Barr was at the church committee hearings giving Bush advice during the testimony? No, I didn't. The book is a revelation. And obviously, I didn't know these things until the book came out just a few weeks ago. But I knew that he was involved in Iran-Contra. I knew that he was involved in pardoning all those guys. And I knew he was a terrible choice for Trump. And I suspect Trump may have been sort of given no choice in that someone might have said, well, this guy, William Barr, will make the Robert Mueller problem go away. And I think Trump is very interested in Trump. And I like it when Trump's goals are aligned with my own. But he's like so far off the reservation right now. Uh, I, I, I do not think he is winning my vote at the moment. Right. Now, I want to get the calls. Tarif, 202-521-1320. Tarif, keep it short because I've got a heart out. So do me a favor and keep it short. Go ahead. What's on your mind? Okay, first I'd like to say free Jordan and Sandra. I'm gonna keep it short. Um, okay, Pepe Asmore tweeted out something saying that um by okay, Von der Lindgren is gonna um stop all the imports of Russian um oil to Europe, but he's gonna make the decision after the election Sunday. So it won't hurt Macron. So next week you're gonna be you're gonna see the price of a barrel of um, uh, petroleum is going to skyrocket because Uh-oh. we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, that was the main thing. I have two others, but uh, I, I can tell you tomorrow. Do that, Sharif, please. Sorry about that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, thanks very much for the call. Yeah. And uh, skyrocketing oil is something we're already getting. The the move, The I talked about the Russian milk calculation that going light would work for them and that Ukraine would give up. They didn't count on the hard push they're getting from NATO. But the other area where the U.S. miscalculated completely was that they could destroy the Russian economy. Right. The sanctions have had the opposite effect. They've hurt yeah. the American economy more than her Russia. Joe Biden is like Wiley e. Coyote. The dynamite keeps going off in his face. Okay. So now let's do this. I've got an interview I pre-taped with the great Alex Craner. And this is essential listening if you want to understand. So Jason, I'll say goodbye to you. Thanks Thank for you, your Lee. co-hosting. Great job. My pleasure. Thank you. And our Patreon show is now on Saturdays, starting this Saturday. So everyone should know about that. The show High Dive with Jason Goodman and Lee Stranahan is on Saturday, right, Jason? It is. Looking forward to it, Lee. Okay, so let's go to the interview with Alex Craner here on The Backstory.
And we are joined now by a great friend of the show, author and hedge fund manager, Alex Craner. Hey, Alex, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Good to be with you again, Lee. <laughs> Good to talk to you. So I want to do a reset on the Browder story for people who may be new to the show or people who just aren't obsessed with this and may have forgotten some stuff. Uh, so uh, let's start at the beginning. How did you find out about Bill Browder and who is Bill Browder? Yeah, okay. I think this is a good question because I think in the in the fog of everything that's going on, uh Browder might seem like a, like an obscure uh largely irrelevant figure, but he he is part of a very very important um network linked to the uh international uh banking cartel who is one of the main drivers of the agenda against Russia. So to go back to the how I met Bill Browder, I met Bill Browder uh, in Monaco in November of 2005 when I was invited to his presentation. And at that time, I had no idea who Bill Browder was. Uh, I had absolutely no interest in, in Russia or Russian investing or any kind of Russian affairs. I was at that time pretty much the, uh, you know, um, I held my my opinions pretty much match the 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 average of the of the western media's uh, news consumers that is you know like i had a very dim picture of russia and especially of vladimir putin but uh bill browder's presentation uh kind of set off uh, a spark of intrigue in my mind because it was the very first time I ever heard anybody speak positively about Vladimir Putin. And what Bill Browder was saying is basically that he, so he was a, a hedge fund manager based in Moscow and his fund was the largest foreign owned uh, investment fund in Russia. And so he was explaining uh, the fund strategy what they would basically do is they would uh, research uh, major Russian companies and they knew that there's horrible corruption in the companies that were, uh, you know, plundering wealth from under the shareholders. And so their strategy was to research and uh, investigate the, uh, the corruption, who is doing it and, and how. And then they would uh, publish it in Russian and Western uh, financial press. And what Bill Browder was saying is that each time that they published uh, a, an investigative piece about uh, corruption in Gazprom and you know the the um, Russian uh, utility company and some of the Russian banks, Putin's government would come in and clean it up. And they would change the management and they would change the laws, laws to disable corruption. And that kind of took me by surprise because I fully believed that um, uh, Vladimir Putin was uh, owned by the Russian oligarchs. And so from a very authoritative vantage point, Bill Browder was saying that actually Putin was cleaning up Russia from the oligarchs and corruption. 
And so that I thought was extremely interesting. Of course, you know what happened uh, over the over the ensuing years is that Bill Browder's uh, stance on Russia changed 180 degrees, and he started styling himself as Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. But uh, but and, I think what you're important is what you're pointing out is very important. He was doing the work of journalism essentially, except. He was doing it for a financial gain, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, exactly. Whereas a journalist might expose corruption and it's no benefit to him. He's just exposing it for the sake of exposing it. Browder was using the same tools of journalism to then change the value of a company and change the behavior of that company so he can make a profit off of it, correct? Yeah, that's right. And he was actually very successful with this strategy. You know, the usually after they after they uh, broke a story about corruption in 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 a major company, and then the government came came in and cleaned it up. Uh, usually, the stock shares of that company would would uh, would skyrocket. And I think, if I remember correctly, in case of Gazprom, I think they made something like a hundred times on their investment. Now, now, is this what is referred to as green mail? Oh, I, I, I have no idea. I have, don't know if that. Have you if, heard, if, heard that term? I've, I've never heard of that term before. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. I, I think it's. I think it's what is referred to as green mail, which is they essentially blackmail a company by exposing corruption in it, and but but they have a hidden agenda. Now, at this point, now you're saying this is 2005, right? Uh, yeah, correct. This is 2005. And uh, at that time, so this is November 2005. And I, I think it was maybe November 5. And that's not completely irrelevant to the story. Um, because at that time, Bill Browder uh, was quite vocal as a supporter of Vladimir Putin and his government. He was very open about it. He was very vocal, saying, no, Vladimir Putin is doing good stuff for Russia. He's cleaning up corruption. He's uh, returning the country to the rule of law. He's doing good stuff. Uh, except that literally five days after he had that presentation in Monaco, he was kicked out of Russia. So he he flew to Moscow and they canceled his visa upon arrival to Shermetyevo airport. And then they put him on the on the next plane back to London. And from that moment on, they did not renew his visa. And so his his business in Moscow started to unravel. And so that, you know, that vexed him and his his position on Russia and on Vladimir Putin changed 180 degrees and he became the most outspoken uh demonizer of Vladimir Putin and Russia of of anybody that I that I know in the public space. And I assume that Bill Browder, when he was doing this to Gazprom and other companies, exposing corruption and profiting from it, I expose that part of his network, part of his Rolodex included many media figures, because how he exposed the corruption is he got the story to media figures. And I'm thinking specifically of Glenn Simpson. Uh, Glenn Simpson was a business reporter 
Kia Fusion GPS. And Bill Browder had a Rolodex full of media, financial media figures, New York Times, Washington Post, right? Did, did, did you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that, you know, that whole story with the uh, Glenn Simpson and G- uh, Fusion GPS is uh, is really uh, a, a long, deep rabbit hole because uh, I, I don't know a whole lot about his relationship with Bill Browder, but I also know that uh, one of the founders of Fusion GPS was deeply involved in the in the Therano story, which okay, it's not a subject for today, but you know, it, it seems that they it seems that they are present wherever something really nefarious and sinister is going on. But you know, he also then had a very close fr- a friendship with Christian Freeland, who is now finance minister of Canada. So yeah, you know, he had he had very close. Now wait yeah. a second, I hadn't heard that before. Now what? When you say a very close relationship, does this go back to 2005? Oh, I don't know, but it it definitely predates her 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 time as a as a as a politician in Canada. Definitely before, you know, because she used to be a she used to write for a Financial Times or Wall Street Journal, and she was a correspondent from Moscow. And, I think. and, and also, she went over to Ukraine. To work with George Soros. Yep, uh, correct. Right after the fall of the Soviet Union, I think around 89 or 90, correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And so she had, you know, she was she was connected with a lot of these Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs. And she had uh, she had a well, you know, when I say close relationship, I, I don't know if they were like close buddy buddies, but he was he could rely on her to publish things for him to interview him and so forth. Now, let me just take you down a side street for a second. George Soros says his number one goal with his NGO, International Renaissance Foundation, is to expose corruption. And I made a joke, and it's only a, it's a joke that's not funny. But if I've said, if George Soros' job was to expose corruption, he sucks at his job. Because, you know, 30 years later, Ukraine is still one of the most corrupt countries, Right. Well, yeah, but, you know, uh, I think that the way George Soros talks about, uh, you know, cleaning up corruption is he means cleaning up the competition. So you see, this is what I'm getting at. It seems to me that Browder and Soros actually were applying the same methodology. Uh, yeah. I think you're on the right track, but I think that at the in the earlier stages of Bill Browder's career, uh, he was not allied with George Soros. I think that they were actually in some ways even rivals. Right. You know, when there was when there was uh, you know the feeding frenzy of Western financiers plundering Russia. Um, Bill Browder was working for uh, Safra of the New York Republic, Republic Bank of New York, Edmund Safra, and uh, George Soros was uh, connected with a different group, uh, which is, I think, called uh, Renaissance Capital, if I remember correctly. And I'm not saying they were allied. I'm, I'm just saying that the technique is a very interesting technique, and it's used currently today by a lot of people 
Yeah, yeah. And it could be that they're using it against Marine Le Pen today in France to make sure that their their banker, Aaron Boy, uh, Macron, remains in power. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. But, you know, like it, it's uh, whether they are allied or not is the wrong uh, at this point is, is not relevant. I think that what's relevant is that they are linked to the very same network that has headquarters in the city of London and on Wall Street. So we're talking about the international banking cartel, and both Browder and Soros are their officers. And and also, what you're pointing out about how he switched his opinion on Vladimir Putin, Bill Browder has had several, throughout his public career, has had several turnabouts with people, hasn't he? He's had people he was his sworn enemies at the time. Mikhail Khodorkovsky was not an ally of Browder's. In fact, Browder said, I think in his book, when Khodorkovsky arrested, he was glad, right? And now it's turned around and he's an ally of Khodorkovsky's. So isn't that something that's a typical MO for Bill Browder? Whoever he was friends with at one point, He's likely to be their enemy later and vice versa. Whoever his enemies with, he's likely to be friends. It's their their strategic alliances. Is that broadly correct? Yeah, that's correct. I when in fact at the at that presentation in Monaco in 2005, uh Bill Browder literally said that Mikhail Khodorkovsky was a thug and probably a murderer. And that he belonged in prison. You know, he was explaining how, you know, among other, among other things, in cleaning up corruption, Vladimir Putin put Mikhail Khodorkovsky in prison, and Khodorkovsky was the Rothschilds errand boy in Russia. And so, at the time, I think that Bill Browder didn't really understand the the network above him, and well, he he. He saw Khodorkovsky as a rival. Today, they're all on the same team, so you know they're all mm, allied and friend and friendly because they 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 all have the same objective, and that objective is to weaken Russia, to destroy Russia, and to and to uh, um, make it go away and disappear and regime change it. Now this brings up an important part of your story as well. But Khodorkovsky and Bill Browder were brought together by a man named Jonathan Weiner, who's a longtime associate of John Kerry's. And this is important because it figures into the Biden corruption as well. Kerry keeps showing up. He was the Secretary of State, of course, during the Euromaidan, but did not. Am I right that Jonathan Weiner, spelled W-I-N-E-R, it's an unusual spelling, there's no E at the beginning. But Weiner brought together, and he's the attorney for both Bill Browder and Mikhail Khodorkovsky, and he brought them together. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. John, In fact, Jonathan Weiner was the man who uh, uh, sent the letter to Amazon uh, to to delete my book from you know, from their offering, he, he, he had Amazon ban my book and he was acting on behalf of Bill Browder, um, in when, when he did so. And, and, and I want to point out 
that uh, this is also part of the MO here. Notice that in a lot of these stories, there's censorship. They can't refute you, right? He's never refuted you. He's never, Browder's never sued you for defamation, has he? No, nobody's ever sued me for defamation. But Jonathan Weiner wrote a letter and had Amazon take down the book. And I'm just going to point out broadly that this shows up again and again. Igor Lopotnik's film, Revealing Ukraine, the film I'm in and uh, Medvedchuk is in, very early in the war, Amazon removed that from view. You can't see it. They didn't outright ban it. YouTube did that. But haven't you noticed that, that censorship is modus operandi of these people? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because uh, it is it is imperative for them to uh, maintain control of the narrative because their their agenda is is sinister and nefarious. And in order for their agenda to have public support in the West, they have to dress it up as some kind of, a, you know, a noble upright agenda to whatever fight for democracy and freedom around the world whereas it's actually borderline mafia business well and and the the, the mo that's a characteristic of the green male type mo that they're talking about they claim to be good people they claim to be exposing corruption but really there's a nefarious purpose Exactly, because if the American people knew the truth about what the you know like the deep state uh, s- sector of the of the U.S. Department of State is doing, they absolutely wouldn't support it. And so they you know like they have to silence anybody who jeopardizes their narrative. And so that's what happened to uh, Ukraine on fire. That's what happened to my book. And that would hap- that's what happens to more and more people today if they dare to speak up the truth about what's going on between Russia and the United States and the West in general. And also worth pointing out is that Jonathan Weiner used to be, first off, he's operated as a private lawyer at the same time he's in the State Department. During the Obama administration, he came back, he was at the State Department, was an employee when he banned your book, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Now, but he didn't write a letter on behalf of the State Department, but same effect. And Jonathan Weiner, at one point, was one of the people policing Mikhail Kordakovsky, wasn't he? Early in his career, he was supposedly expo- you know, exposing... Mikhail Kordakovsky. So he knew all the rumors about Kordakovsky when he became his lawyer, right? Oh, well, yeah, for uh, clearly. Okay, and I just want to point that out because, a, a, you know, a lot of what needs to be understood, I think, by people is that these same people come up over and over again and they clearly use the State Department and operate... It's a clear conflict of interest to be at the State Department, but you're the lawyer 
for people that the State Department at one point was investigating. They don't care about the fact that it's a conflict of interest, do they? No, they don't care about the, you know, the the rule of law is uh, is very flexible at that level of uh, deep state involvement, you know, and uh, one, th- one thing I can tell you about the type of lawyer that Jonathan Weiner is, you know, like there's this category of these uh, power lawyers that, uh, you know, c- carry on very important assignments is that I can I can tell you for sure that Jonathan Weiner knows more about Mikhail Khodorkovsky than Mikhail Khodorkovsky knows about Mikhail Khodorkovsky. He knows everything for sure. And 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 explain the significance of Monaco and mention Edmund Safra. I'd like you to expand on that for people who don't know who Edmund Safra is, but he has a significance to Monaco where you said you saw Bill Browder speak in 2005. So who is Edmund Safra, who was at one point Bill Browder's, he, he was Bill Browder's financial backer, correct? Yeah, that's right. He was his seed investor in his uh, in his uh, little fund. Uh, Edmund Safra allegedly seeded uh, Bill Browder's uh, hedge fund in Russia with $25 million uh, initial investment. The way Bill Browder tells the story in his uh, in his uh, Red Notice book is almost certainly uh, untrue from, you know, from everything I know about the way this industry works. And so Edmund Safra was a, was a Syrian-Israeli banker uh, who... Um, worked first. First, he set up a bank in Brazil at the age of, I think, 24, 25, 26. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but a very young man. He set up a bank in Brazil. Uh, eventually, he became the owner of uh, Republic National Bank of New York. Uh, Republic National Bank of New York had a huge role in the 1990s plunder of Russia because his bank was um, in charge of uh, smuggling brand new U.S. dollar, uncirculated U.S. dollar bills, uh, which flew from uh, JFK in New York to to Moscow on, on, on pallets and bags which they used then to buy uh, Russian assets on the cheap to 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 bribe bribe uh, Russian you know generals officials whoever they needed to bribe to do what they needed to do and why uh the that story yeah, go ahead. about the money on pallets was reported in a magazine at the time and it's a story called The Money Plane. And if people go to Populist.tv, That's right. my website, at Populist.tv, search for Money Plane, I reprinted that article because there's no form you can read it easily online. That article mentions Kordakovsky and mentions even Jonathan Weiner. That is a stunning story. So say it again, that what was happening was Pallets of freshly printed money were being flown to Moscow. This is in the age of the oligarchs before Putin was in charge, right? Yeah, this was during Boris Yeltsin's reign. And and it is 
absolutely shocking. And I have that's the only story that covers that. The writer wrote a book called Red Mafia, where he discussed as well. But have you seen many stories on the pallets of cash that were being flown out of the U.S. and to the Republic National Bank in that period? It's a shocking story. Yeah, it's a shocking story because it also implicates uh, the Federal Reserve of New York because, uh, you know, the uh, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars and you cannot just randomly print up money, deliver it to somebody and then smuggle it out of the United States to another country without uh, tacit approval and cooperation of the Federal Reserve of New York and also of the U.S. uh, Federal Controller of the Currency. You know, you can't, because I think that the quantity of money that was smuggled out of the United States was something between 10 and 15% of the money that was in circulation in the United States. It was a massive amount of money, you know, like it could have uh, potentially destabilized the American economy. It was that much money. And so the fact that it was just shipped off to Russia like that uh, definitely implicates very, very important uh, people in the in the Federal Reserve and the, and the U.S. government. And so when the story came out in the New York magazine, uh, there was there was a follow through. There was an investigation. But uh, Charles Schumer uh played a very important role of making that story go away, uh, pretending that they, you know, like, um, uh, you know, he, they, 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 they whitewashed it essentially and uh, made it go away. So nothing came of it. No, and, and it's the kind of story that back when I was growing up, that 60 Minutes should have covered because it's very visual, pallets full of cash, and – it was a well-written story and well-researched and documented story. Uh, yeah, uh, correct. It should have been, it should have been a, a first-class scandal in the United States. You know, if people understood the implications of this, it should have been a massive scandal. And Saffer was right at the center of that at the time he was backing Bill Browder, which shows That's you right. some of what was going on. Exactly. That's right. And his bank played the central role in smuggling this cash into Russia. Right. And 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 I would urge everyone to go to populist.tv, do a search for that story and read the entire thing. I I I laid it out nicely. You can read it on your iPad or your phone or whatever. Uh, And it is shocking. And the fact that you've never heard of the story is shocking. But I want to point out that about Edmund Safra. Now, Edmund Safra backing Bill Browder, you say uh, this brings up another issue where I think it's interesting. You mentioned the Rothschilds, and Mikhail Khodorkovsky clearly is connected to the Rothschilds, right? 
Well, at the time when Mikhail Korokovsky went to jail, there was uh, there were several articles in the Western press, in the in the Times of London and on BBC, uh, that basically said that uh, Mikhail Korokovsky was a stand-in, a trustee for uh, uh, the Manitab Bank, uh, controlled and owned by the Rothschilds, uh, and so that. There was a there was a contract between Khodorkovsky and I think Jacob Rothschild or, or one of their companies. It was Jacob, uh, yeah, yeah. Where if Mikhail Khodorkovsky became incapacitated, his uh, interests in Yukos would pass, and 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 the Russian Manitab Bank would pass to Jacob Rothschild. Uh, but actually, the contract. Actually, the contract stated to an unnamed party, which in itself is is an amazing thing. You know, like try try to draft a contract with an unnamed party. You know, you you, you can't do this. This is this this would be this would be illegal in any uh, jurisdiction. Anyway, the unnamed party turned out to be Jacob Rothschild. So he, uh, Mikhail Korokovsky, was clearly a trustee holder of. Uh, Interests in Russia on behalf of the uh, Jacob Rothschild and the Manitab Bank. That's an interesting story as well. It factors into how Mikhail Khodorkovsky at one point was the wealthiest man in Russia, and he got that way by buying Yukos Oil, which is the big oil company, and as we're learning now, people who didn't know it before knows Russia has huge oil assets. And Yukos was the company that controlled those oil assets. But Kordakovsky went about buying the company and he bought it for pennies on the dollar. He went, had an unusual way of buying the company, correct, Alex? Uh, yeah, that's correct. But it wasn't just him. It was, uh, you know, like there was a group of seven bankers. All of them were, uh, you know, stand-ins for Western uh, for Western investors. And I don't know who they are, but you know, like it's gonna be it's gonna be uh, Rothschilds, uh, Soros, uh, uh, Rockefellers, whoever you know. And basically, they organized because they controlled Boris Yeltsin's cabinet. They organized privatization through these uh, auctions, right? But the auctions were designed to be corrupt, so that uh, the people who were auctioning off the assets also controlled the auctions, and then they were also on the opposite side. So they made sure that there was nobody there to to present a competing bid. And so all of them basically purchased all these companies. If we jump ahead, which is Browder was the person behind pushing the Magnitsky Act, which is, we hear about all the time now, it came by the Trump Tower meeting. The Magnitsky Act, physically in the act, and right there in the act, it says it's to protect the American investors in Yukos oil, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it's a yeah, I, and I think it's in general the 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 whole. So um, just just to not get your listeners lost in this, uh, basically the Magnitsky Act is a, 
a, a piece of legislature that was lobbied through U.S. Congress in 2012, primarily by Bill Browder, but also with cooperation from Jonathan Weiner, whom we also mentioned. And basically, this legislation uh, wrapped in the in the behind the facade of human rights is made it possible for uh the US government and specifically for uh, an unnamed person within the tre US treasury department uh to basically sanction anybody a person or a company uh in Russia whom they accuse of uh, infringing on human rights, and uh, there's no due process, so it's a it's it's really uh, an affront to the to the American legal system that there, there's no f due due process. It's just some bureaucrat within the deep state decides that such and such person or such and such company is going to be put on the Magnitsky list and then their assets in the United States are frozen, they can no longer travel, uh, you know, they can no longer go to the United States uh, and they become compromised in all kinds of ways. And one of the main kinds of ways that they become compromised is inability to reach uh, the, the the Western judicial systems because this act was then passed as it was passed in the United States, it was passed in many other Western jurisdictions where Russians were pursuing investigations into how their family silverware was pillaged and stolen and siphoned out of Russia offshore. And so, you know, like they needed to go to, to Switzerland, to Cyprus, to other offshore locations and to London and to Washington, uh, and, you know, file court cases, uh, hire investigators, depose uh, mm, uh, uh, people who were involved and, and run an investigation. And so Magnitsky Act has been effectively used to disable all these investigations and to frustrate Russia's ability to um, to investigate what was clearly a criminal endeavor in the 1990s. And it's that same MO that we we're talking about before. They couch it as something good. It's supposedly stopping human rights abusers the same way they supposedly were stopping corruption. Right. But then they were well, yeah. using, they were using that as a as a mask to cover what they're really doing, which is. You know, nefarious activities. So this sanctions process to the Magnitsky Act is corrupt at the heart of it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the whole story with which they used to lobby this act through Congress was a completely fraudulent story, it was a complete lie, which is what prompted me to write uh, the book Grand Deception, because I, I, you know, like when I got into this, I realized that these people are pulling the Western powers into World War Three against Russia. That this is, you know, the Magnitsky Act was just the beginning of the Cold War against Russia, but it it wasn't going to stop there. It was going to go further until you know, because their agenda, their object, they their imperative is to try to completely destroy Russia. Now, and and the thing I'll I'll point out here is this is completely corrupt with people who play a big factor. In the Ukraine war, for instance, Joe Biden was the sponsor of Senate Resolution 322 in 2005. Senate Resolution 322, if you look it up, 
is in favor of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. So Biden was a backer of Mikhail Khodorkovsky's. The House version of it was sponsored by Roger Wicker. He is the congressman. He's now a senator from Mississippi. And he was the one who a few months ago suggested nuclear war against Russia. So these are the guys who sponsored who sponsored Khodorkovsky, Biden, and then the co-sponsors of the bill were McCain and Obama in 2005. So three, four years before they ran against each other for president. Yeah, that's right. And so and so you can you can see from that that their the, the the progression of their agenda is the destruction of Russia or at the very least the regime change and partition because their their agenda is to to divide Russia into five into five uh, uh, entities into five weak states that they would pit one against the other and then to essentially take over Russia's resources, which are absolutely enormous, and to move in with their own banks and corporations. And for that they need to destroy the the country as a as a as a as a unitary, as a you know, like as a contiguous unit. And so it does it's not a surprise that Wicker, who's sponsored this resolution in two thousand five, is now advocating using nuclear weapons against Russia because that's what they're driving at. That's their objective. Yes, and so a lot of this is pointing out that the writing has been on the wall about the war on Russia. Uh, for years, the writing, would you agree with that? Anybody who's paying attention, the writing's been on the wall for years. And the players have established themselves long ago. Kerry, Biden, Roger Wicker have been established as players in this years ago, right? Yeah, many years ago. I think that they, they they wouldn't be so worried about Russia had Vladimir Putin not uh, fixed it. Because Russia, the, in 2000, when Vladimir Putin became president, Russia was on her knees. It was the it was it was a complete mess. Uh, it was wild west. Uh, the, the military was broken. The rule of law was broken. It was the most corrupt nation on on earth. And you know. Russian oligarchs who were errand boys for Western investors uh, were running the country. Uh, Vladimir Putin put it back on track, built it back up into a, into a, into a, um, a worthy adversary, let's call it. And uh, so when they realized that they had no control over Vladimir Putin, then, you know, the war on Russia became the next the next goal now Alex because your research is so long I, I don't want to denigrate the great work that you've done but if I say to you that this is all easy to figure out it's all documented you, you know you can look up resolution 322 from 2005 and see Biden sponsors it it's right there you can read the magazine and see Ucos's oil is mentioned do you agree with me that actually getting to the material and showing it's not it's not russian propaganda it's absolutely factual isn't that hard you can lay it out pretty easily it's complex but each part of it is proven independently. Do you agree with that, Alex? 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think that uh, the the story is well. You know, I, I, my book was entirely based on uh, official documents and on Bill Browder's book itself, and uh, I think Bill Browder's narrative is extremely easy to debunk. The problem is that you know, like when the censor when when the censor silenced people like you, like me, like uh, Lucy Commissar and so forth, and and you have six corporations that control ninety percent of what you hear and and read uh, in the West, then it's very difficult to get the story across. It's not because it's so complicated. It's not because it's Russia's pro- Russian propaganda. It's absolutely not. It's, it's, it's very factual. It's because the information space and the narrative are being very, very rigidly controlled. However, I have to say that my impression is that they're losing that battle because, you know, they're, they're, um, strategies of censorship would probably work if we still depended on uh, newspapers and TV and radio where you have, you know, like a small number of people uh, producing the content uh, for a large audience. But today when, when you have social media and millions of people are pushing out content that other people see, I think it's becoming extremely difficult for them to control the narrative. I agree. I agree with you completely. And I think that ultimately, because the facts are so clear, they're in real trouble. Alex, this has been a fantastic interview. I wanted to reset it for anybody who knows the story even a little bit, or even people who don't. Don't take Alex Craner's word. Don't take my word. Look up what we're saying. Look up what these laws say. Right, Alex? I, I'm not insulting you if I say not to take your word for it. Am I? No, absolutely not. You know, like I wish people would not take my word for it and just look it up for themselves because uh, they would encounter facts and these facts speaks for, for themselves. All I've done and I think all you've done is like uh, dug up those facts and brought them forward for people to to see and read and hear. That's all. And 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 I think you've done a great service to civilization by putting out your great book about Bill Browder. Tell people where they can get that. Uh, the only place where people can get my book about Bill Browder is at the Red Pill Press website. And Red Pill Press was the only publisher brave enough to uh, republish the book once it was uh, once it was banned. And they can find me also on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Naked Hedgy, one word. So that's basically that. And, and Alice Craner, let's have you back on again soon. To, to, there's so much to cover here. We weren't able to get to everything. We weren't able to get to very much about Bill Browder. But again, his great book is a place to find that. But I think this is very important uh, for people to understand. Yes, I, I entirely agree, Lee. And thank you. Thank you for having me on your program. No, we love you, Alex. Appreciate you. And... Uh, Check out the work of Alex Craner and check out the articles we mentioned and check out the work he mentioned, Lucy Commissar. We've had her on recently to understand what the background to this war is, the real background. This is the real background. Thanks, Alex Craner. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Greetings to your listeners. There you go. An in-depth interview with Alex Craner and 
going deep on a lot of stuff like Kordakowski. We'll have more to say about that soon. We're trying to get Lucy Gomesar back on the show to talk more about the browder Kordakowski relationship. Like the situation with the Nazis in Ukraine, you have to understand it, and the media won't tell you. The media is trying to hide this information, which, as we pointed out, is very easy to figure out, and you can confirm it for yourself if you know where to look. But that's the key. You have to know where to look. Thanks again to Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth for being a great guest, co-host, and thanks to Mark Svoboda, straight out of Moscow, for his in-depth coverage on the war and the background behind some of the stories behind it. This is a place to be. This is a place to get information that by someone who doesn't tell you, take our word for it, but tells you how to find it yourself. The truth is at war here. That's why this information is so important. When people are starting to realize it, and they are, and I think this is going to go eventually go away, what people believe on the war and, and will eventually go the way that people went on Russiagate, where Russiagate was admitted to be a hoax. And many of the so-called facts behind this are going to be coming out over the coming months. Till next time, I'm Lee Stranahan. This is Backstory. Backstory.